Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. Darkness my lamp cannot touch, night too heavy to carry inside, only a pile of useless aces. This program features the work of 2022 writer Jessica Gigo. In the first half, you'll hear her conversation with curator Michael Schmelzer, recorded in the Jack Straw studio. Let's start off with you telling us about your Jack Straw project. Well, I'm working on a third poetry manuscript. It's tentatively titled As Long As You Need Holding. And the poems that started to come together in this collection were largely a response to ecological grief and realizing sort of the different ways that that shows up for me in my life. I'd like to think it was nice and tidy and organized, but mm-hmm. I've tried to kind of group the poems that have been coming up for me in sort of three broad areas. One is the future, really thinking about future studies, futurism. I think that's a really fascinating area. That there's a whole you know field of inquiry about strategic foresight and how we even know what's going to happen to us. Also thinking about motherhood and grief things that you lose as a mother. I mean, there's so many things that you gain, but I'm, I think it's important to also talk about the things that you lose. And I think also what comes up for me under the umbrella of ecological grief is regret. I have a six and a four-year-old and my six-year-old is in first grade and they had a, a lesson on extinction. I think it was the first time she learned that word. And she came home and she said, was this a problem when you were my age? <laughs> and I thought, I said, yeah, yep, it was. And it was when I was in my 20s and considered myself, you know, an environmentalist and an activist and a scientist. And it's still a problem now. And it's just, I think I'm, I'm processing sort of being middle age and wondering if I've made a difference or wondering, you know, if we're ever going to make a difference in some of these, in some of these environmental issues that are ever present uh, so I'm, I think that's also some things that I've been kind of thinking about in terms of ecological grief, because it's not, it's so different. I mean, there's so many different types of grief, but mm-hmm. ecological grief specifically is this disenfranchised grief and it's ongoing. So we're grieving something that may not even have happened yet, but that mm-hmm. is, you know, it's anticipatory grief, I guess is a better way to frame it. Um, and so it's just, I feel like it's always kind of with me in different forms. And it's not the only thing I write about, but I do feel like it's kind of consuming a lot of my creative work and thought. And so I never really set out to write like a collection around a specific theme. But in this case, I think it's really, you know, at the forefront, which is why it was really felt like a good timing to bring this into into Jack Straw. I have a question. In your artist statement, you have these lovely, important questions that you ask. How do we care for each other? How do we nurture ourselves in the natural world? And I think part of the way you do that is definitely by observation 
and this careful attention you give to your writing, and it's almost a way to honor nature. What are some of the other ways that you nurture yourself and the community and the world around you? The word nurture um, is really a, it's a pretty loaded word for me. I think I'm, you know, I'm a new mother. Um, I have a six and a four-year-old and I knew I wanted to have children, but I had no idea what it was going to be like. And prior to having children, we, uh, my husband and I had been on the farm for three or four years and we had started to take on different animals and I'd never owned, you know, a place before or land and realized pretty quickly that I could easily become an animal hoarder <laughs> if I didn't have his voice of reason. And that was like, and I, I think I spent a lot of time thinking about that. Like, why do I want to, you know, what is my connection to these creatures? And I, and I realized like in some ways, sometimes I'm better dealing with animals than I am with other humans. So I, I enjoy caring for animals, but it, I learned a lot about the regularity and, you know, the attention and the need to show up not just on your timeline, but on, you know, other beings needs. And, you know, we have got donkeys and sheep and ducks and a, a dog and a cat. And, you know, that was sort of my first lesson in mothering. And I, and that's a lot of what I wrote about in my second book, Feeding Hour, was just realizing how much I didn't know about nurturing. You know, my mom was not a super, uh, you know, nurturing type mom. I mean, she had her own way of nurturing me, but I didn't, I didn't really think about how I would mother or what type of mother I would be. And I'm really learning now about, um, what I, you know, how to, how to be present for mm -hmm. another person. And I think I was in some ways not very present for a lot of people in my life for many years. And, so caring for animals, caring for land, which is really a very long-term relationship, mm -hmm. you know, that was, um, I've just, it's, it, it requires a bit of, I think, humility, like I've, you know, in terms of, of the farm work that we do, like it, we've had some really beautiful times and also some really hard moments, um, either through uh, just trying to keep up with orders and having very hectic, crazy summers to, you know, managing flood and other winter disasters that have been more frequently, more frequent lately. So I think I, you know, there's just that, it's that patience, it's that attention. It's the ability to sort of step outside yourself and really know what something else needs, whether it's the land or your children. And, and then obviously like having little beings that are your, that are yours that, you know, you have to keep alive. Mm -hmm. I think that was terrifying to me when I, you know, my first daughter was born. Just even the first few nights she was in the house, it was like I couldn't sleep. I just had to make sure she was still breathing. And so realizing, you know, a lot of that, I mean, that came, came from love. Like it comes mm -hmm. from love. But, you know, the real love as a verb has been quite the learning experience for me as a mom. I'm I'm glad you brought up feeding hour. I was actually going to ask you a little bit about that. Um, could you tell us a little about that book and whether you see this new project as a continuation or perhaps evolution of some of those concerns? There's a few poems in feeding hour that I think they work in that collection, but I think they were sort of leading me to this work. A lot of the poems focused on early motherhood and also parallels with 
our flock of sheep and just the experience of birthing lambs, like that's something that has been fairly profound to me being, you know, witnessing that and being a part of that. There's one poem in particular, it's called Two Mothers Walking. And it was from a walk I took with a friend of mine who had a daughter who was about to leave leave home who had turned 18. And I, I had my, you know, small baby at home. And we it was just this interesting conversation we had about about motherhood and you know the the highs and the lows and as we were walking we saw what I thought were swans and they were actually like I I looked over and I saw this orange in the distance and I was like that's weird and I realized Mm. that they were pelicans Mm. and I'd never seen pelicans on our shoreline in northwestern Washington and I did some, you know, when we went home, I did some research and it, it turned out they have slowly been creeping up northward. And now there's actually like a whole group of birders that document this pelican population, which is becoming like a permanent population in yeah. Padilla Bay, where I live, which is just one of those like very slow, yet very obvious signs of climate change that I feel like we need to be talking about and we need to be witnessing and and I remember in that moment, like it was really exciting. I don't think I'd been that close to pelicans before. I think it's the white American pelican. Um, but it was, it's also terrifying of, you know, realizing how things are changing. And um, there's another poem called Adaptation where I sort of think about what is going to happen when the sea levels rise. Because I, where we live, I'm about 11.1 feet above sea level which is actually quite high compared to my neighbors. I'm kind of on a knoll and they're quite jealous. <laughs> but we just I just looked at a, you know, a NOAA report about sea level rise along all the US coasts and I think our area of western Washington it's projections between now and 20, 2050 and they're projecting about a, you know, a 10 to 12 sea, you know, sea level rise which really makes me afraid and you know but I'm not grieving the loss of (laughs) that land yet which I will say um, is you know originally Coast Salish territory that was Mm -hmm. tidelands that had been diked by um, immigrant settlers mainly Dutch and Norwegian Um, so in some ways like it might be going back to its natural state how it how it should be I don't know but just that that change is happening um, Mm -hmm. and not knowing how that's going to affect the world that I know now or the community that I know now. I I can't grieve that loss yet. It hasn't Mm -hmm. happened yet, but it is, it does definitely, it fills me with a lot of different feelings. And I think that's where this work is coming from. And so those two poems specifically were ones that I thought about when I was starting to write new work and realizing like, hmm, yeah, there's a lot that I'm I'm processing there. Now we'll hear a selection from Jessica's live reading. Adaptation. Water churns around us. 
a fluid finger of the Salish Sea, oscillator, orchestrator of all near-shore ecologies, eelgrass, clams, intertidal algae. Someday these waters will rise above familiar fence lines, into backyard gardens, underneath farm fields, and other unprepared places. I wonder if I will still be here then. Perhaps I'll have retreated inland to the safety of basalt and sagebrush, safely away from salt and the buoyancy of calling this fragile delta a home. This is called Fall Salmon Run. Past the wheat stubble and spent spinach seed crop, the bridge is littered with trucks, men and tackle boxes, awaiting the big kings, or maybe the fall, chum, coho. Salmon car carcasses loll like stones along the river floor. The fall, a last hope for home. Farmers and bankers stand shoulder to tartan shoulder to snag a wearied one. In water this low, you could almost yank a tail by the hand. I hear a cough and then a fuck. Two teenage boys scramble up from under the bridge, coughing with their trick bikes, backpacks, baseball hats, backwards. They are not in school, nor do they see the water below. To them, the salmon is sport. To the families that paddled this river first, it was spirit food. When the season was closed, there was blame on both sides for the dwindling harvest. How quickly hate is abandoned now that permits are open again. We are all irreverent teenagers loitering along the bank watching nameless eddies circle and pass. Conservation shouldn't cost more than consumption, but it always does. And a lot of the, the poems in this book are about early motherhood, so I want to read this one called Returning to Water. She enters the water with trepidation, but this fluid space absorbs all of her fears, maybe even feels like her first true home. Tiny feet flap and kick, not for motion, but investigation of liminal movement, her own growing expanse. The chaos of splash brings joy and terror, freedom and buoyancy. She yells, almost cries, then settles her heart-shaped lips to the surface to transform air and water into effervescent elation. Garden Doctrine, Peony and Rose. Sarah Bernhardt comes by surprise each year. Tight-fitting, light hue with a multitude of petals, they scatter or stick to the head of Buddha in what feels like a single moment before they are gone. 
heirloom, nameless rose, unfurls in stages from green bud to open story. And once she starts talking, you can hear her royal chime, smell her scent for centuries. One by one, her red pieties float by St. Francis as he prays for renewal. And I had these very large pages printed out to read some of the new work, but I'm very excited to actually have the, the anthology in my hands, so I'm going to read from this and read some of these new poems that uh, I've been working on. The Scientist, after Emily Dickinson. She tells me frogs are disappearing at an alarming rate as we count the bees foraging for nectar in stands of jewelweed. Following the professor's instructions, we caught them in our nets, put them to sleep in jars on ice, and glued tiny numbers on their backs. Of clovers and of noon, she wants to be a herpetologist after graduation. She wants to save frogs from extinction. I am not sure what I want to be or save. Perhaps these bees or this meadow, things unaware they need saving. She collects a tiny cache of pollen from stick legs to examine in the laboratory, scribbles furiously in her waterproof notebook. Her mother always called her a curious girl. Dotted with yarrow and bachelor buttons, goldenrod about to burst, this meadow is a story. Nature is what we know, yet have no art to say. I contemplate the gentle quiver of Queen Anne's lace, fields of guilt screaming the rate of extin extinction is our fault. Caring, she whispers, is sometimes the hardest part. Sometimes I leave the light on. And the epigraph is from the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication, another wormhole I often go down reading their studies. Uh, more than half, 55% of Americans, say that they have thought a great deal, or some, about preparing for a natural disaster. I am with the half that worries about the brunt of it all. Death, destruction, extinction, and then falls asleep to shows like Emily in Paris and Ozark. <laughs> half awake to catch the ending, our bed feels too far to walk, so I stay downstairs. Wool blanket, second skin, elderly cat wedged between my thighs. I am not getting up from this second-hand couch. I am asleep in my clothes, filthy popcorn teeth. I don't care. Sometimes it feels good not to care. Sometimes this break in routine is all I need. On those other nights, 
Even the slightest creak will set my mind ablaze. It's not trespass that alarms me, but the grief. I could have done more. I could have locked the door. Sometimes I leave the light on because I know life could be much worse. House of cards, tattered, storm-surged cards, burnt corners and creases. They could never have predicted this mess. Darkness my lamp cannot touch. Night too heavy to carry inside. Only a pile of useless aces. I'm going to read one more poem uh, from a while ago, and it's called Apology. We all fall down. We all weep sometimes. Today, we give thanks for orange, for ice, and then warm hands around our waists. The sky tells pretty truths while the solace of twilight spreads into my sleeves and collar. We are all right. We have felt this pain before. Trust and more trust rising up from the space between field and sunset. Thank you. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production, produced by Carlos Nieto and Daniel Gunther at Jack Straw Cultural Center. Our recording engineers are Daniel Gunther, Joel Maddox, and Aisha Ubiadelica. Our theme music is by Ron Park, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The 2022 curator of this program is Michael Schmelzer, and the narrator for this podcast is Carlos Nieto. The Jack Straw Writers Program was inspired by an over-the-back fence conversation in 1996 between author Rebecca Brown and Jack Straw Executive Director Joan Rabinowitz. The program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, For Culture King County Lodging Tax, the Washington State Arts Commission, Humanities Washington, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Rainier Foundation, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. Special thanks to Maddie Lotz and Cassie Nicholson for transcribing our writers' interviews. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology. You can subscribe to this and other Jack Straw podcasts through your favorite podcast app. To hear more episodes and learn about our other programs, visit us at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening. <laughs>